Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we do a show us your portfolio focus with Spot Gamma's Brent Kochuba. We talk to Brent about his goals and objectives with his portfolio and how he uses his data and expertise on options and option dealer hedging and flows to manage parts of his portfolio. For Brent, there are longer term retirement investments and shorter term option strategies being deployed to help him try and grow and compound returns, manage risk, and be smart about investing over time. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Spot Gamma's Brent Kuchu. Hi, Brent. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for asking. Today, we're going to do a show us your portfolio episode with you. Um, what we like to do in, in these is find investors like yourself who are knowledgeable on the markets. And, and in your case, you have a specialty around options and talk about how you actually go about managing your own personal portfolio. And if you do anything different or unique that we can learn from. Um, so that's what basically the goal of the discussion is today. Um, we always like to start sort of at a higher level and sort of talk about how you look at your longer term goals and objectives with your portfolio. So when you think about your investments and what you're trying to achieve with them, um, what would you consider your longer term goals to be? Uh, I guess I should say I'm about 40 years old, a little bit over 40 years old. So um, that's kind of what where I am in life right now. And I guess you you guys know you start this transition where you try to build some capital, right? And then uh, and eventually you start you know drawing down on that capital possibly or trying to live off the return as you get uh, a little bit older. And so. Uh, where I'm at now in life is is trying to you know just continue to maintain um, my capital base and compound those returns and so um, I'm fortunate in that I have a, a successful business that I run and so um, you know that generates some nice cash flow for me and and so I try to like reduce the the risk that I'm taking elsewhere um, and I think in my phase of life I'm starting to kind of enter that phase of life where you kind of want want to reduce the swings that you take like the risk that you take. Um, and that's kind of just what my general you know, mindset is at, at the moment. What do you um, think about when you think about your retirement? I mean, you said you're 40, you obviously have a lot, a lot longer to retire. You're trying to focus on, focus on building the business right now and probably growing your family. But um, I mean, do you spend any time thinking of, of retirement and what you'd like to do in retirement? And how does that sort of uh, affect or maybe not, not affect how your portfolio is managed? Yeah, I'm, I think, you know, constantly about retirement. And I think the holy grail really for anybody is to have a large enough capital base that you can just sort of live off the yields of that capital base, right? And then be able to pass that down to your children and hopefully, you know, provide them uh, with some assets going forward so they have kind of a leg up in life. And I think that most people in our shoes, I mean, I know that you all have kids, that that's kind of what, what the end goal is, right? Um, to have something that you can pass along and, and really uh, you know, help to give your kids a boost uh, as they start off. So my mindset is is just sort of that, right? Trying to measure how much I, I you know, how much yield I will have, right, uh, for a given amount of capital, and, and trying to grow that capital base and keep those returns compounding, 
Um, and, you know, ultimately, I guess that's sort of the underlying force that I believe in, even though I focus on options and all this other stuff. I mean, you know, as Einstein who said that, you know, compound interest, right, is the, is the greatest force in the world. And, and I believe that. And I, I think it took me a long time to really see that and understand that uh, when I focus on sort of longer term investments. Given that you focus on options, I think it's kind of sort of this interesting dichotomy between like short term and long term. You know, I, I would highly recommend. You know, I've been reading your your product coming in. You know, to this interview, and I would highly recommend it to uh, to anybody. It's really good. You know, and on that product, you kind of focus on short and intermediate time frames, but then also, you know, kind of with your portfolio, you've got this longer term time frame. So I'm wondering, like, how you sort of balance those two when you think about building your portfolio. Yeah. So the the primary way that I use my options data, and actually where I came about really monitoring the options market was actually using the options market as triggers to enter uh, and exit stock positions. So I, I came to be of this belief, and I've explained it in the other uh, talk that we did, that basically the options market can drive equity markets. And there are certain times where there are valid triggers, right, for uh, the options market space. And so the, the base, you know, fundamental kind of trigger I found was that you can find when the market starts to big build big put options positions. And I found through various back tests and things like that, we call it the vault trigger on our site, but basically that's a moment where you wanna to move to cash or actually hedge your portfolio. So I'm a big believer that the, you know, the equity market in the US specifically goes up over time. I think that the way that the environment is structured here, right, that, that like the S&P 500 and spiders and VOO and all that is an asset gathering machine. Uh, whether it's through inflation and 401ks and sort of the, the market's focus on the wealth effect in the equity market that over time, I think the S&P goes up, right? And if you can reduce the, uh, the drawdown that you take, right, that's kind of the holy grail. So if you can sort of sidesteps those moments in time where we draw down 15, 20% in the markets, uh, and even if you're not great at getting back in, uh, after that 15 or 20% drawdown, even if you're a little bit late on getting back into the market there, that that gives you just such a substantial leg up. And so that's sort of how I entered this, you know, this frame of mind of looking at how the options market impacts uh, equities. And, and that's a longer term kind of signal, right? That, that sort of these put positions building. So my longer term money, right, uh, is generally almost fully allocated in equities. And then when I have this signal go off, it's the same signal that I produce in the uh, in our daily notes. I'll flip the cash and or I'll buy put protection uh, based on that. And that's all about trying to protect that capital base. As you know, if you just sort of always allocate or always hold a 1% put position or a 5% put position, you know, there's uh, some very smart guys who suggest that, right, that, that it's worth holding that 1% put position. There are times where that really feels like a drag on your portfolio and a lot of people hate that drag, right? Like all of last year, if you owned that put, uh, you were just paying that tax and, and you guys are advisors, you know how upset people get with that, right? And then all of a sudden the market crashes and they go, well, why didn't you have me hedged? And you're like, well, I, I tried, but it was a drag last year and blah, blah, blah. So that that trigger, right? That we call it the vol trigger or the gamma flip line is that is this point where it tells us to, or tells me personally, get some protection, allocate more to cash, move all the cash, whatever it may be. Um, and I'm not constantly trying to carry that drag of that, of that put protection. If I said, let's, let's always have the put protection, right? This is sort of the signal to, again, make that adjustment. 
It's interesting to, to your point about like constantly buying put protection. You know, someone like me who's not that knowledgeable about this stuff would look at this year and say, oh, the guys that have been buying puts have been doing great or the guys that have been buying the VIX or whatever have been doing great. And, you know, those people have all been doing really poorly. So it's, it's sort of an interesting year from that perspective that it's, it's not, you know, just, just you would think with the market down, those types of strategies would be working, but they really haven't been. Yeah, that, that's 100% right. And, and this is part of the problem that, you know, using, I shouldn't say it's the problem, it's a feature of the options market, right? Because you have a three-dimensional sort of surface that you're playing. Like if I just don't like equities here and I short spiders, I'm going to make money if the market goes down, right? But it, you could have to buy uh, an in-the-money put to replicate that spiders. If I buy an out-of-the-money put and vol, Jack, to your point, volatility doesn't go high enough, that put may not make any money. Right, so because there's this decay feature uh, of options, so um, it's a three-dimensional kind of yes, the underlying price you have to monitor. There's time in there, and then there's also volatility. There's these three factors that you really have to monitor, and that can make it very complicated. So you know you can find strategies right that are very successful option strategies in certain environments, uh, like shorting the market when vol goes crazy. Then an out-of-the-money put was awesome, right? Because there's convexity, meaning that out of the money puts pay off and you're like, great, this is this is awesome. Uh, but then there's an environment like this year where it's a grind down and out of the money puts don't really pay all that well. Um, so, you know, it, it's not as simple. And I think that's why also when you're looking at how do you use options as a trigger for something, if you express your view in equities, particularly in your longer term basket, it, it reduces the complexity of a lot of this, right? Because I can take a trigger from the options market and how people are positioned, but, but then I don't have to then try to complicate things with figuring out how I'm going to express an investment view through the options market. Uh, again, I'm talking about you know medium to longer term investing here. Um, I can simply express that view with equities, right? If I think the market's going to crash, well, I'll go to cash or I'll short using spiders. And then I can, you know, then I don't have that second and third order effects of time and, and volatility. So is the signal you're using, is it sort of an intermediate term signal? Like it's not something that would go out one week and, and you know, flip back the next week? Is it, is it more like inter intermediate term in nature? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the signal can flicker a little bit, right? It's, it's kind of a moving average based signal in, in a way. And what it does, what the signal does specifically is it looks basically at the amount of put positions relative to the amount of call positions in the market, specifically in the S&P 500. And depending on those weightings, right, that's sort of like this risk on risk off level. And as you guys know, those positions can flip back and forth. There can be a little bit of noise in the short term. So you can get some flickering in that signal, like around a big options expiration or, or those kinds of things. And so what I found is that even though you get some of that short term flickering, it gets the big movements right, right? So this, this metric, for example, flipped in early uh, 2022, so earlier this year, um, and then it, it held like, it, and then you didn't get the risk back on signal, right? Um, for, for quite a ways until March and then, you know, and then it sort of re, uh, reset. So, you know, kind of went back in in March and then um, and then went back into cash just off those mark, March highs. So it gets, it, it pays back, I think, when you get these moves like we're having now. I mean, we're talking here on, on September 26th and the market's down, I don't know, six, 7% in, in like, uh, you know, I think a week or two, right, off the FOMC. And so, you know, in these moments, when you go to cash, it pays back, even though sometimes there is that flickering that, that is a little bit of a tax. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. When you were talking about this, the, the thing that kept came to my mind is this idea of trend following, you know, which we use, which is a totally different thing, but it kind of tries to do the same thing, which is, you know, trend following can be can flicker, it can be wrong, but it makes it all back by being right about the major moves. Um, and so like the same idea, like if you can get through those ups and downs, like you, you make it all back, you know, when, when you sit through that period where, you know, the trend is down and you're out of the market. Yeah, that, that's 100% right. And 
you know, I will also use sort of shorter term trading to hedge my longer term portfolio if I feel like I want to hold assets and I'm a little unsure. Um, and also there are times where I think that the options market has given me such a great signal that I love the risk reward. And I also think that the other thing with options that's tricky is that um, you have to have an edge, right? If you don't have a, a quantifiable edge or, or, or an edge over the market or see something vastly different than the market, um, particularly in the options market, you will get punished very quickly, right? And so I think through this positional analysis, again, I use the things that we write every day. So anyone who sort of subscribes to our service knows, you know, the things I'm talking about, but I'll look for big options expirations or I'll look for volatility to be sort of blowing out in a way that I think that the, the market is positioned a certain way um, and they don't understand the options dynamics that I see. And so I will try to use options in the shorter term as a way to sort of bet against that, uh, bet against the market or express where I think there's edge. So I'll generally position, uh, I, I typically only trade in the S&P 500, the Qs. I like the, I like the index positions. Um, when you get into equities, you know, you have to worry about dividends and corporate actions and there can be a lot of other kind of hair on that dog. So I'll typically just focus on those index products where uh, it's a little cleaner, right? Um, sometimes you look at like a volatility in like, you know, GameStop or something and it's because there's a corporate action and you didn't know it and <laughs> it just complicates things a little. So. Um, so sometimes I'll use that uh, sh my my shorter term trading portfolio right to to supplement a view. Uh, for example, uh, I, I'm expecting I'm looking for a market bottom around a big options expiration. So I have circled on my calendar, for example, the December uh, options expiration this year, which is the third Friday in December. I think it's the 16th. Apologies if I got that wrong, but the third Friday in December. Big options lows, big market lows are often associated with these big options expirations, and so. I have that highlighted in my calendar. And if I'm not comfortable sort of putting my longer term money in, I may just sort of buy a whole bunch of calls in my trading account, mentally write off that premium, right? Because I want to express this view. I don't want to miss the rally. I'm not totally comfortable exposing, you know, my longer term money, but I'll I'll allocate some, you know, some capital to call options, for example, right? That would in enough size that would supplement me so I don't I don't miss that rally. Yeah, and, and, you know, anyone who didn't watch our previous episode, if you can go back to this to uh, you know to hear more about this. But this idea of these pivots on options expiration, you know, that's something I've become a big convert on. I mean, if you look back in these last few years, been, there's been major pivots both ways, you know, tied to these options expirations. Quarterly options expiration also syncs in time with FOMCs, right? So uh, typically, what happens? You get big put positions expiring, which I think can lift the market. And I don't want to get off track, but oftentimes that can leave with pivots or changes in the way that the Fed is operating, right? So you just get this time and price parameter that I think is really important. This kind of sort of gets to my next question, which I wanted to ask you about sort of option dealer positioning and, and how your long-term investor should think about that. You know, we talked about sort of these pivots in, in the short term, and then also there's this idea that in the long term, you know, the fact that more people are using options, dealers are becoming more important. You know, we might get some sort of significant market event where, you know, dealers exacerbate things to the downside. And I'm wondering, you know, do you, do you think that's, right? Do you think that's possible? And also for an, for a long-term individual investor, should any of this stuff be incorporated in how they manage your money? I mean, how do you think they should think about that? Yeah, uh, those are two great questions. So the first one I would say is that um, in regards to, you know, longer-term investing, you guys probably know this better than anybody, but sort of the, the worst thing that you can do is say, I'm going to be a buy a hold investor. And then when the market crashes, decide to sell all of your positions. Right. And, and it's so easy to do. And it's so easy to understand why that happens. And it took me personally, like, you know, a few times of getting kicked in my early twenties to like understand that. Right. And so I think that 
you need to have the framework obviously before that look i'm a buy and hold investor i may just not look at it again until i'm 60 years old because i believe in the same idea that equities go higher over time because of inflation or you know asset gathering or whatever else it may be right um and so there are the second sort of wave of that is are you the type of person who can't not look at your portfolio right are, like if the market's going down you're gonna be checking your 401k every day and feeling sick about the whole thing and if you are that person, I actually am that person, right? Like I'll, I'll be kicking myself if I'm in, in fully invested and the market's down 20% and ripping my hair out and blah, blah, blah. So I need these extra tools, right? That help me sort of feel like I'm managing or doing something in times of a crisis. And I like the options market for that because as you mentioned, dealer positioning and the like is building so much. And even if you don't ascribe to the idea that, you know, there are these hedging flows that moves the market, it's fascinating from a sentiment perspective, right? If the world is really scared about the market uh, and what is about to come, that is when you get VIX of 50, 60, 70, whatever, right? And you get big put positions building in the market. And those put positions are increasingly being built up at smaller, shorter term timeframes, which skews a little bit of this data. So there's a lot of people who trade, you know, zero, D, uh, I call them zero DD, DTE options, which are essentially like options that expire in a day or two, right? But if you zoom out just a little bit, the big positions, right, the big players will position at monthly ex options expirations or they'll position at these quarterly options expirations. And so, again, from a sentiment perspective, if I just watch how those guys are positioned, right, the biggest players in the world who use S&P index options, I, I can sort of just watch what they're doing. If they're hedging, if they're concerned, then I probably have a reason to be concerned, right? If all of their put positions just got closed up and they're not hedging anymore to the downside, then they probably see value, right, or something else uh, there. And so I can just sort of wrote, say, okay, look, from a sentiment perspective, all these options positions just got closed up. And I believe that's fuel for market higher. But even if you don't believe that, even if you just look at it from a sentiment perspective, I think that's a really valuable piece of information, right? Um, those puts getting closed and people suddenly switching to like call options, for example, uh, is a great piece of information. Just sort of like looking at, you know, uh, how a capital flows into the and out of the markets and, and, and the bull bear sentiment readings and things like that. Do you think at some point, like say in the next five years, we will get maybe like a significant market move where options dealers will exacerbate that? I mean, do you think that's a risk to the market, this increased use of options activity and then the dealer flows that come off it? Uh, I, I think it's already happened like it, all the time. Um, like, you know, um, if you just look this past Friday, for example, we had a, uh, we were kind of on the lows of the, of the day and then suddenly we got like a one and a half percent rally out of nowhere. And there's a lot of information going around if you look up on Twitter and the like of how uh, we had record put positions in the market this past week, and then we had, uh, the, you know, the biggest put volume ever across all the S&P or across all stocks, right? So <clears throat> these positions are already really big and meaningful. And what's happening now, which is a little bit squirrely, is that people are focusing on the shortest dated expirations, right? So people are trying to make meaningful, uh, longer term um, uh sort of like outlooks, right, on, on what is happening in some of these instances, and it's short-term noise, right? So there's a lot of people on Twitter saying, oh, these positions are all closed, and that means like the market is, you know, the bottom is in. And I think that's true on a longer-term time frame, but when all this speculative activity comes in the short-term, um, it's a lot of noise, and that noise can very quickly move the market around, right? It creates extra volatility. Um, but Again, we talked about this in the past, but if you look at the lows in the market, the significant lows in, in just December of 2018 was the big one. And then again, March of 2020, 
the lows of the market were the days after the biggest options expirations. Those are the quarterly options expiration. I don't think that there's any coincidence there that, that the lows were there because you had giant put positions that all expire. Uh, and these are deep in the money positions, right? If you're Bridgewater or uh, AQR somebody, you don't sort of willy-nilly generally jump out of options positions, right? You hold them to expiration and then you, and then you roll them. They're, they're your hedge or whatever they may be. And the position is so big, you often would make such a wave in the market that you, you wait for expiration. So that's why, again, these expirations come up. So the fact that those expirations are timed with significant lows in the past, and that's why I think this upcoming December expiration is so important, that sort of relates to this idea that the options market is, is wagging things. And I also think that the velocity of the market movement now, right, is tied to some of this these options flows. Um, we're getting bigger <clears throat> volatility now than we've ever had. And, and I base that on realized volatility. So the S&P 500, if you look at how much movement we are getting in 2022, that is sustained at a higher level than in the last 10 years. You have to go back to basically kind of the great financial crisis in 2008 to, to get the same amount of volatility. So I think what's happening in this market is that um, you have a lot of volatility because a lot of people have just backed out of the market. There's ideas of, of degrossing and things like that, but the options market's still going crazy, right? And these options flows are kind of one of the big, big flows and uh, options dealers have to have to hedge, right? And, and those are going to, those have a bigger outsized uh, impact now. I want to ask you just in general about use of options in portfolios, because I, I know you're, you're an expert in options and you do use them in your portfolio, but we've seen, you know, with the whole Robinhood age, we've seen a lot more people using options in their portfolios. And I just wonder, wondering if you could talk about like may, maybe some of the risks of that and, and your ideas in terms of like, if, if I want to use options in my personal portfolio, like what the bar is in terms of like the level of knowledge I should have before I start doing that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it really runs the, the gamut. I think that if you are a little bit, have a little bit of a longer time horizon, um, there are a lot of great ways to use options, both for downside hedging, uh, if you're worried about your portfolio and, and you know, you can very easily calculate the cost of your put position, right? And how much that will pay off if the market moves down a, a given amount. Um, and, and I think it's fairly easy to grasp those mechanics. Um, there are a lot of people now who get into short dated options. I just kind of made a reference to this. They're trading the option that expires on Friday or the option that expires, you know, in two days. And, and at the end of the day, what that is, is leverage, right? <clears throat> and it, it is speculative leverage and you are playing with the wolves, right? When you, when you get into that, I'm not saying that you can't be successful at it. There are a lot of people who like to sell short dated options and have this view that it's income off of, of decay and the like. And, you know, it, it needs to be said here that, um, if you ever go, I'm going to take one step back because I think this sort of ties in. But if you ever go to an actual fund, like when I, you know, I, I used to be at work at banks, so I visit hedge funds and these funds have unlimited resources, right? When you look at a Citadel or a Susquehanna options market makers, they have literal rocket scientists from the best schools in the world with unlimited resources, literally unlimited resources to figure out how to monetize all these options and stay in business. That's not to say that you can't make money trading options and in this market, but when you just start to speculatively kind of get into short dated options, like you're betting against those guys. Again, it doesn't mean you can't win. It's just, it's very hard to keep that up over the long term. Um, and I think that, you know, if you look at who came out the best over the last two years of all that short dated GameStop type activity, you know, again, if you're holding GameStop for the long term stock, cause you believe in it, this is a different conversation. I'm just talking about the options market. 
um, you know, you really need to know what you're doing, right? You, you really do. Again, there are people who are successful. I'm not saying you can't be, um, but if you just sort of like learned what a call is and, and buy next week's, you know, call option, you're probably paying way too much for it. Uh, and you could be right in that the stock goes up and you still lose because you don't understand the dynamics of necessarily what you're doing. So, um, and again, I, I want to say, I definitely don't want to be read as like, don't trade options or I'm telling you, you're not smart enough. <laughs> like more power to you. I'm just saying you're, it's it, that's a tough it's a tough game so um back to the sort of original point i think there's a lot of fascinating and great ways to use options particularly when we get to big market lows or when we're at highs and you want to hedge your portfolio um i think there's tremendous utility even for people who have longer term views right leap options are an extremely successful strategy um if you look at people like nancy pelosi for example the pelosi trades right um they as i understand it right they love longer term uh exposure to a lot of big tech stocks right and that's worked out very well from the past not this year obviously but the way they express that view is through call options so they'll buy leaps long-term call options and they let those ride because if those call options go up they know they have a fixed risk in other words like i spent whatever it is 25 grand on leap call options that's my risk right if i if i if that doesn't go my way okay i lost 25 grand and again their portfolio is worth millions so 25 grand is not that relative that much but if the market goes up, I make way more than 25 grand, right? I make 100 grand, suddenly that's just as good as stock, right? And I have a leveraged bet on the upside. And that is sort of the other piece of the pie. Like options are leverage, and that leverage can actually be invoked in really successful ways, right? And I mentioned before, I like to use that when I think of market lows coming in. I like to buy a little bit longer term call options, for example, because that's giving me leverage to the upside, right? If, I, if, if the market does run, this was a this was a huge strategy for a lot of really smart guys in March of 2021, where you could actually sell like an at the money call and buy like you know 200 slightly out of the money calls because the the relationships got so off kilter that if the market really bounced on a Fed pivot and blah blah blah, you, you made out like a bandit. Um, and so those types of relationships can 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 be found and I think can actually be you know like funky to look at some of these uh, spreads and the like, but but they they have actual a legitimate real sort of um, uh, value, right, for, for any type of investor. Yes, to your original point, we had Ben Inker from G GMO on the podcast, and what, what he said is sort of when you're making a trade, you should ask yourself, who's on the other side of that trade, and why would they give me a return? And, you know, if the other, if the person on the other side of that trade is Ken Griffin, you know, the odds are he's probably not going to be, you know, he's probably a little bit smarter than me, and he might not be looking to give me a return. But the, the other thing I think people, you know, sometimes get wrong about options is options are not always this risky thing. You know, options can be used to reduce risk. You know, so it, it's more about like any product, I guess, it's about knowing how to use them properly. And if you do, you know, you can use them in, in a good way and not necessarily, you know, have to lose. Yeah. And, and to, that, to that exact point, you know, if I have a million dollars in my 401k and I'm in cash right now, like knock on wood, I'm in, in cash. I feel great. I, I want to get back in the market because right? I don't want to miss the low. But if I'm wrong, I think the market go down another 10% and oh man, like, cause those things happen, right? Picking the low is extraordinarily hard. It's extremely scary. You're probably not gonna pick the ultimate low um, and you're gonna get a lot of anxiety. Like you won't be able to sleep at night, those kinds of things, right? So rather than buying back into the spiders or something, I can just say, you know what? I'm gonna put five grand into calls uh, that expire in six months or a year. So I give myself some time and yeah, I'm throwing out numbers, but you know, those calls, if the market rallies 10% over the next six months, those calls make 
more than enough money to keep my 401k, you know, uh, and you maybe don't want to use your 401k. I'm going to help that out, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, not many people should trade, you know, options in their 401k, but let's just say a million dollars in your long-term equity basket. So, so you have, it sounds like you have like your two buckets, you have your trading, your options bucket, and then you have your longer term retirement account bucket. Um, and you don't, typically trade options in the retirement account. That's that's 100% right because you know it is leverage and I also don't because it is leverage number one I don't want that in my longer term bucket just just for me. I don't I, I don't I don't like that. I use the option signals to allocate into that strategy. Again, I'm I, I believe that the market's going to go up longer term. Uh, you know, market's going to be higher when I'm 60 years old. I, I believe that, right? And so I generally just want compounding, right? I want, you know, dividends. Uh, I, I'm really interested right now in the closed-end fund space, right? There's a lot of interesting municipal uh, closed-end funds and, and just some things like that where the yield is actually getting to be pretty interesting. Um, and there's a variety of those funds. So I, you guys know this probably very well, but now yields are finally getting interesting, right? So I'm interested in allocating into that now. Uh, if I can get an 8% yield on something that doesn't offer a whole lot of risk, well, that's great. Let's lock that in. Um, and, and I will use, so I'll use this shorter term capital, right, that uses leverage. And because it's shorter term capital, it's a smaller amount of capital. But again, I'm using leverage so I can still get an outsized return on that. And I can still sleep at night if all, all heck breaks loose and I, you know, was wrong about buying calls, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a risk mitigation strategy. But to Jack's point earlier, um, that leverage can be powerful, right? It, I, I'm, it's a fixed risk for me, but if I'm right and the market goes up, particularly in this environment, the market could rally 10% in a heartbeat, right? So those are when that those are the times where options are really interesting because you know you can get a, a really outsized return again with with fixed risk. Yeah, the stuff around municipal sort of gets to my next question. I, I wanted to ask you about bonds. I mean, you know, you kind of have a long-term time horizon. I, I would guess you probably have you know most of your money in equities. But how do you think about bonds? I mean, do you have a significant portion of money you keep in bonds at all times, or does it kind of fluctuates? Yeah. So my my uh, my actual portfolio allocation currently is sixty-four percent cash. I just looked before where we looked up, and the rest is in uh, municipal bonds, um, floating rate. Uh, products like, uh, you know, some of the banks have floating rate <clears throat> preferred stocks um, and a little bit of energy. I don't, I don't actually have any equities uh, at the moment specifically because of these signals that I have. And the thing that's so fascinating is I've been sort of like allocating as the market goes down here. And my general view is that I think the Fed is going to pivot and probably at the end of this year because things are getting kind of nasty. I'm not a macro guy. Uh, but I understand these relationships sort of enough and, and things seem like they're moving around. But the yields on this stuff is getting so good that I just say, look, I'm fine holding this now because the yields are finally interesting. Last year and the year before, it's like you just couldn't get into any of this stuff because the yields were horrible. And it's like the risk return is just terrible. So I actually I got out too early last year, um, you know, and I was kicking myself into sort of December. And then, I, you know, things did kind of break down, which I was you know, generally happy about there. Um, so. At any rate, if I could lock in like 8%, right, on like, uh, let's just say like the 10 year, because that's what happens, all heck breaks loose, I'd be happy to lock that in for as long as I could, right? Because I know that, you know, that compounding effect will kick in. Um, and so I think that bond space is a little more interesting right now than equities. Uh, again, because of the yields, I'm a little more comfortable uh, getting the allocation. All that being said, you know, over the last two weeks, I think that portfolio, even though I'm only equi uh, allocated, you know, 65 five to 70 percent 
uh, I'm still getting hit pretty hard these last weeks. It's like I thought these were supposed to be, uh, you know, municipal bonds and, and bank sort of preferred stocks, uh, and they've just been getting, you know, hit pretty hard because of everything that's happening. So um, I, I'm not sitting here trying to toot my own horn saying I picked the bottom and stuff. It's 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 been a little bit painful, even though I, I would I would not typically guess that I would be in a uh, you know, municipal bonds again and, and preferred equities and things like that and then be down like 2% in, in a week. Like there's a lot of volatility out there. It's, it's pretty wild. It's been, it's been one of the challenges of this year is, you know, people are so used to bonds, you know, being the thing that helps you with the volatility, you know, and this year bonds have sort of not helped much at all. You know, it's in some cases they're down more than equities and in some cases they're not really helping that much. They're down just a little bit less. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, this is another thing is that um, if you look at, uh, Artemis Capital, you know, they talk about this idea of the dragon portfolio. And, and if you just Google Artemis Capital dragon portfolio, it's this really great paper where he talks about the fact that correlations essentially move to one, right? When things get bad. And what I mean by that is that equities crash, bonds crash, commodities crash, it all crashes and breaks down, right? And so the only instrument, like kind of of truth, he says, is volatility, right? And historically, you get equities drawing down, right? And equities did okay in the March of 2000, or excuse me, uh, bonds did okay in the March of 2020 crash. But there were some moments in time there, right, where that, that relationship, right, the 60-40 portfolio broke. And I think at the end of the March crisis, I mean, this was all happening very fast in February and March of 2020, but... There were some times in there where it didn't feel like bonds were going to hedge your portfolio. And clearly, again, Jack, to your point, this year bonds have not helped you out at all, but we were off of yields that were at the zero bound, right? And so there was nowhere in a way maybe for those to go. And so the only thing, and this is kind of interesting, right, that arguably gave you a hedge is in a way volatility. But then to your point, which kind of makes things a little bit tricky, is that like being long volatility is like, kind of not actually worked out either um you know as the market has like gone down here so um i am of the opinion that we're gonna have a move where like the vix goes over 40 and that will be the kind of the end of this right we get finally the blow off you know hedge but there's been a lot of carnage there so you know cash is king i guess in that in these respects uh it's it's, it's very it's been very tricky for people um i don't envy the thing you know the way that you guys have to dance here <laughs> So going back to your portfolio, this the sixty four percent you mentioned that is in cash. Is is that kind of the money that would be in equities if your trigger was was positive right now? Yeah, exactly. So if I get a positive trigger, um, I I right now I just allocate into uh, back into equities. So I'll buy longer term calls. Um, I generally buy call spreads because if the market starts to rally and volatility goes down, like the VIX drops, then your call positions actually can get hurt a little bit there. So. Often I'll buy call spreads and that's sort of the way that I protect myself. I don't want to miss, you know, like the market going up 10% or 20% and stabilizing up there, right? And then I just kind of, you know, miss the market. But back to that original point, I don't know that I would care necessarily. Like if volatility really comes down uh, and I miss five or 10, even maybe even 10% in this market, um, maybe I'm okay with that, right? Because then you're talking about the S&P back up around what, uh, 4,000 or something like that. And so it's like, okay, I bought back in there and hopefully I sold at, you know, much higher prices. So, um, again, I like to use the options as that leverage point, but a lot of people who don't like trading options or can't for one reason or another, because of the way that they're, you know, again, if they're trying to allocate their retirement, you know, portfolio, um, 
you have to be okay to miss the bottom. I think it's better to miss the bottom, have volatility come back down, and then you just have a much more stable market to invest in. You, you mentioned the S&P 500. Do you do anything in terms of trying to pick equities in terms of like value or growth or individual equities? Do you do anything like that or do you try to stay with indexes? I generally stay with indexes for cost and also for uh, tax purposes. I think that in the longer term sort of portfolio, you get a little bit of better tax treatment, particularly when you're trading options, if you're trading longer term options. Um, I will trade some equities if I feel like I have you know, some kind of an edge there, or sometimes I just think the volatility of an individual equity or an equity portfolio uh, means that I'll get a little more juice. So meaning that if I think the market is really going to rally here because the Fed pivoted, I might put more into sort of tech stocks, right? Um, because I think that uh, they'll, they will recover faster than maybe the S&P 500 will. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, back to this idea of of hedge funds and sort of like the power they have and looking at individual stocks and stock pickings. And, and you guys probably are better at this than I am. I don't, I, I, can't, I don't have enough time to watch fundamental analysis and all these different things. So, you know, I'll play with like an Apple or if I feel like, you know, I, I think I have a little edge somewhere, I'll, I'll play with an individual stock. But, but by and large, if I'm being sort of honest about it, it that's mostly kind of gambling, right? Like I'll just buy equities, I'll buy Qs uh, if I feel like you know, or, or some ETFs have some interesting uh, outcomes, but a lot of times I don't have a great grasp on the fundamental picture um, or enough to, enough to say I have a significant edge. And do you do anything with your portfolio beyond stocks and bonds? I mean, do you invest in alternatives or private equity or venture capital or anything like that? Yeah, I've done a little bit um, of that. Um, there's some sort of real estate funds that, you know, you can invest in. And, and by and large, you know, I've, I've played around with some of that stuff, uh, but not found it to be... Um, Particularly, you know, those, those um, I'm drawing a total blank, you know, the funds where you can invest and they'll invest in like multi-asset real estate and some things like that. And, you know, those are, the liquidity in there is just, you know, not been the, not been the best, right? Um, it's doing okay, but uh, most of these things where I've tried to get into more exotic investments, I've just found that I could express it in some type of an ETF or an equity that does like pretty much just as well. Um, and the liquidity is something that is really valuable to me. Um, I, I like the fact that if I want to get out of REITs or something, like, you know, I just sell it, right? No problem. And, and I think there's a lot of value to that. And I've also, I'm also a big fan of keeping things simple. Um, so I've, I've found that like the amount of time I've spent, you know, even there's been a lot of strange like crypto investments and things like that I've looked into. Like I spend an inordinate amount of time for that. Um, there are parts of that market that I don't understand. Like I remember one that got me is we were investing in, we were spread trading um, cryptos. This was about like 10 years ago. And so we were in uh, the Mexican Bitcoin exchange. I can't remember what it is. There's a crypto exchange that, you, you know, prices everything. <clears throat> um, in pesos, right? And there was this arbitrage and it was working great. And then all of a sudden they closed the exchange if you were a US citizen, right? So it became this giant nightmare to try to get money back. And, you know, it was just a huge headache. So I found a lot of those situations happen. And I'm just like, look, I understand equities. I understand ETFs. If I want to buy REITs, I can get into REITs and get some exposure to the equity market. If I want to buy Asian, you know, some kind of weird Asian bonds, I could do that. If I want to buy you name it, right? You can pretty much get there now with all the variety of ETFs and things like that. So um, that liquidity, immediate liquidity and, and simplicity for me is just, I, I, it's gold to me, right?
Yeah, to your point, I mean, we, we've talked to a lot of smart investors like yourself on the podcast, and that's something they say a lot. You know, you obviously have the ability, if you want to, to generate, you know, a very, very complex portfolio. But, you know, the more we talk to people who have the ability to do that, they recognize that simplicity really is the way to go. And they don't build that ultra complex portfolio because they realize they can get it done much simpler. Yeah. And I, like I have a friend who, who's a very successful home builder, right? And he does it by himself. He's just got it figured out and he loves it. and He's very successful at it. And I don't want to manage people, manage contractors, manage the tax. Like all those things are, you know, so challenging for me, you know, and, and again, he's great at it. Um, and, but, but that's like kind of an example, right? Some people really enjoy that, uh, and don't mind that, you know, extra sort of work that, but, you know, I've just found that I, I feel like I have an edge in the equity markets. I feel like I understand that and I, and it tends to lead me to stay, you know, in that general vicinity. Again, when I look at closing funds and things like that, yes, those are bonds, but, um, that fits in really well with kind of my equity basket in a way, right? It has immediate liquidity if I need it. Um, you got to understand some of the underlines, but uh, those are all liquid markets and um, and a little easier to understand, you know, what's happening. One of the questions I like to ask, uh, because we, we sort of have earned a similar position to you, you know, we own a business that's in the, you know, tied to the equity markets. And so, you know, a, a lot of what we do can be tied to, you know, if, if the equity markets are tanking and people are less interested in equities, you know, we can be get, getting hit in a lot of ways at the same time, you know, not just our portfolios, but our income's going down and the value of the business is going down. And I'm wondering if you think about that at all when you build your personal portfolio. I mean, you talked about how you have, you know, more of a reduced risk approach. Do you, do you think you do that because you have this ownership in this business that's also tied to the equity market? Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I think that, you know, when I was a younger person, um, I, I think I didn't understand. It, it's a funny thing, right? Because you need the experience to sort of start a business and, and be able to offer, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, something that people... Uh, are willing to pay for, right? Uh, we write this note every day and it took us 20 years to understand the markets in a way um, that 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 people liked and was valuable people. And so, you know, that was a challenge. That would have been a challenge to try to do that at 25 years old. Uh, but at 25 years old, I probably could have lost whatever money I had and it wouldn't have been a big deal. So obviously as you get older, um, you know, your, your ability to sort of, most people reduce the risk that they're taking. And I think I'm in that, in that bucket, but to your point, the, the business ex, uh, expanding at this point in my life um, offers really great, you know, returns for us. And we feel like, you know, if we keep doing what we're doing and offering value for people and, you know, anyone who owns their own business, right, you want to grow that business. And if you think you're successful at it, then that will outsize any return probably that then you're going to get in, in holding spiders over the long term. So, you know, that, that is definitely one way where it's like, look, I, I don't need excessive uh, I don't need to take on excessive risk. And as I get older, I definitely want to reduce that risk. Um, and two, you know, let compounding work. Let, let's build, let's build that. Let's let that work. And, and, you know, hopefully I'm able to continue to add to that, you know, core equity portfolio and, and, and let that, uh, and let that work. And then not only that, the, the, the tax, you know, uh, there's so much involved with taxes, right. And, um, and it's, and it benefits you to hold equities for a longer term and, and all these kinds of things. So, um, if you are really levered in equities and, you know, it makes it harder to hold equities over a longer term. So then you're selling and you're paying tax applications and all these other kinds of things. So, um, you know, I, I definitely am in this in this in this position where, and, I'm, and I feel very fortunate about it. But it's like, let's let the business sort of offer my outsized returns that hopefully you know improves improves my future than rather than trying to like make a whole bunch of money day trading um, as, a, <laughs> as the way that I do it.
Yeah, that, that gets at a point that Ben Hunt talked about when he was on here as well. He talked about kind of using the equity markets to sort of harvest your beta, but that if you're ever going to produce outsized returns in your life, you know, you're more likely to do that with your own effort, you know, with something, you, something you're passionate about, something you're good at. Like, that, you know, a lot of people try to get very aggressive in their trading in the equity markets thinking they're going to make you know, their big money there. And a lot of times you're much better off doing it with something you're an expert at in your own life. Yeah, and there's, a, there's so many people too that think it's very easy and they and they invest in like a 2021 or 2020 where the market only goes up right and you, and you feel smart and you increase your leverage and you go this is great i'm gonna make x amount of money every single day and and, and that is a hard thing to do right and it, and it can be a very stressful thing to do the people that do that well very short term are full-time traders um and they're constantly adjusting their strategy and and they work at it for a long time it's it's uh you know it's a challenging thing to do I don't actually like focusing on the, you know, the way that the market is moving in every 30 seconds, right? It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's a tough game. I think you could do it. I think there's a lot of people that are successful at it. Um, but there is sort of like this idea that you got to zoom out just a little bit um, and let things work for you. And I would also say that, you know, I, I literally use everything that we produce every day to allocate my own, you know, my own, my own money. So, um, not only is that business sort of, you know, the business itself helped me tremendously, I think just the general strategy and a lot of these signals also have really helped me out a lot. I was uh, looking at your the, your shirt and uh, I Googled it and I don't know if people can see the bottom of it, but it's the American Farmland Trust. Um, and so I thought, you know, do you, how, do, how does charitable giving and, and things like that sort of fit into, you know, your, your investments? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, I, I think that there are, two things to really offer uh, people. So first, we try to invest in things that I think are meaningful. I think that the big thing for us is, you know, I'm, I do like the American uh, Farmland Trust. Uh, this shirt actually is like a donation to give. That's how I ended up getting it. I was like 25 bucks, so it doesn't really count as charitable giving. Um, but I'm, you know, what I have little kids and I do feel that the, um, I do feel that often enough, there are kids who didn't get the same uh, luck, obviously, right? It's just born, I was, I was born with, with parents who supported me and I'm, I'm fortunate that I can support my parents. And there's a lot of kids, obviously, even just very, that live very close to us, right? Uh, that don't have that same opportunity. So that is definitely one of the things that uh, is really important to me to help grow and improve. And it is one of the things that at Spot Gamma, we really want to improve and help people. So helping people understand um, sort of investing, I think is one of those big keys. Um, and I also think, you know, the entrepreneurial aspect, teaching people to be successful entrepreneurs, this kind of this idea of, uh, you know, trying to uh, teach a man to fish, right, um, are so important. And I, and I think that the education around investing and being an entrepreneur is just, it's really missing, you know, um, not to knock, you know, um, public schools or, or something like that. I mean, my daughter goes to public schools, but, you know, a lot of that is just sort of missing, right, um, in the new economy and all these kinds of things. So I think spending time, right, is a big part of it. And I think certainly, you know, as our business grows, I, I definitely want to be uh, dedicating more in terms of, of money, right, in terms of um, assets, right, if we can, uh, to um, a lot of these uh, entities and um, outfits right, that, that support particularly children. I mean, I, I remember in particular we heard and we gave some money to, um, they were saying that with New York City schools being closed, right, and during COVID, 
um, it was some, some astonishing number, like 60% of kids or something like that, or, or even higher, don't have anything to eat because the school's closed during the pandemic, you know? And, and it's things like that just break my heart because those are kids that live right down the street from us. And, you know, we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world. So um, those are the places where we'll I'll donate, you know, and, and obviously everyone feels like they don't do enough. Um, but if, if I'm ever in a place where I have a couple hundred million dollars for some reason, uh, then I'd love to to really help somebody in that in that type of environment. I think that's great. I think, you know, we don't get a chance to talk about that type of stuff enough when we're focused on the markets. And so I think the fact that you're thinking about that is um, really cool. You know, I was listening to uh, the Imagine Dragon interview with Howard Stern, and one of the guys there took $1,000 a day, so $365,000, and he identified one new charity to give $1,000 a day to. And it was, it kind of forced him to like learn about new charities and, you know, find things that he could get behind to be passionate about. So, um, you know, I think we can all probably do, do more of that. Yeah. I, I, I would just say I definitely fall in that bucket of, of needing to do more. And I think it's, I have this feeling with like retirement, like you continue to move the bar forward, like how much do I need to retire? How much can I do this? And, and some of that too is like, it has to do with, you know, the, the charitable investment side of things. I mean, I think that, you know, we all hope that we can do something that is like a lasting, you know, a lasting return for people, right? Rather than just saying like, well, here's a thousand dollars for some, you know, a hurricane relief or something like that. I mean, I think all those things are easy and they're, and they're meaningful. Um, but I think all of us really feel like we can have something that is like a sustainable uh, or has sustainable impact. You mentioned the uh, Mexican crypto exchange, so that might be the answer to this next question. But um, when you think about mistakes you've made in your investment career, what what would be maybe the biggest one, and, and what did you learn from that? Yeah, I mean the the Mexican Bitcoin exchange was uh, that was a ding. I wouldn't say that it was like a, a you know I didn't lose any kind of sleep over that. I mean we had been arbitraging spreads in Bitcoin, and and this is uh, about ten years ago maybe a little bit after that. So this is kind of before Bitcoin was really mainstream and the spreads were wide and great and we we're making, excuse me, decent money doing that. And so we lost a little more of house money, I guess you call it. Um, but, you know, the, the one that always kind of sticks with me, I think, is um, in 2008 and we had, you know, the, the, the big crisis. I mean, equities seemed to really come in late. And, and I can remember thinking, you know, waiting for so long to get into the market, right? Because it just seemed like something was wrong. And I was obviously quite a bit younger there, uh, younger back then. Um, and when Lehman Brothers sort of broke and when a bunch of other things broke is when I did that infamous sort of get out of the market, right? And I thought that there was gonna be another wave of things. Cause I think part of it is you live in New York City and you see all of your friends lost your job and everything just seemed horrible. And I didn't quite understand all the, you know, economy, uh, the, 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 the functioning of the global, you know, economic machine, right? And so uh, I definitely was like, I was super late getting back in. So I like lost a bunch of my uh, money sort of like waiting too long to get out. And, and then I sold at the wrong time and I, and I bought in like way, way too late. And it was just such like, a, it was such a, um, I was just backwards on kind of everything, right? And I, and the thing that upset me about it was that it took me a long time to sort of believe in the system again, right? And so, you know, I lost like a fair amount of compounding to that sort of point because I sort of said the system is broken and I don't think this is going to work anymore. And I think a lot of people can get into that sort of mindset, right? Um, 
this end is near kind of thing. And, and it was a very ugly situation back then. Um, but having that mindset of like the next sort of crisis is right around the corner. So I don't want to get back in and I'm going to sit there with like guns and gold or whatever. Like, you know, that can be, that can cost you a lot of money right over time. Just not letting that compounding work. Yeah, I think a lot of investors do do that. You know, we're always fighting like the last battle. It's like, you know, we, we go through a bear market and then you think, okay, the next bear market is going to be exactly like that one or similar to that one or do, you know, but it, it doesn't really work that way. It's good that you learn that sort of early on in your investing career. Yeah, and you know, a lot of that stuff is hindsight too. I think for my, my, my problem has definitely historically been getting back into the market, right? Uh, after some of these crashes, I think I've done pretty good at staying out of it, you know, and then you hear, you know, like, oh, I should have bought real estate right in 2009 or whatever. Like you should have done kind of all of these, you know, different things along the way that a lot of it is sort of hindsight bias. You look back and say, great. Um, but, you know, that that sort of negativity or betting against the system, I guess, is 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 one of the big ways. Like someone put it recently very well on a, on a, on a podcast that I was listening to. And they basically said that, you know, when things are at their worst, right? the governments will change the rules or they'll adjust the, the something will happen right and you need to bet on human ingenuity and i was like that you know it's it's really a great point but also the idea that that rules will change right so if like for example when when commodities were going crazy and like oh no like the the lme is going to blow up like it's going to cease to exist and all these things and they just said no we're just going to cancel those trades that we don't like you know and it's like it's kind of those things like your bet when you start to bet on the end of the world like you, you're probably going to lose and Ben Hunt had a great saying about sort of a similar thing was that he, they were making a ton of money, I think from CDS bets, right? And in, in sort of the darkest days of 2008. And, and I remember him saying something along the lines of like, we were making a ton of money. And then I realized like, if the outcome occurred that I was expecting, you know, like real scorched earth, I would have made more money than God, but like the world would have ceased to exist. So what, what is the money even worth anymore? Right? So it was like, okay, the world's over, but I got a bunch of money. Great. Like, what am I going to do with that? Right. Um, and that, you know, that's always sort of stuck with me a little bit there. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very good point. You got to spend, hopefully you can spend the money <laughs> somewhere. <clears throat> um, is there anything, I think Jack has one more question, then we'll wrap this up, but just, is there anything that you're invested in that might be like really unique that investors might not know? Is there something in your portfolio that is um, you know, a little bit different than, I mean, you did say you like to keep it simple. So the answer might be, no, there's really nothing you like, we've talked about everything that you invest in, or is there anything in there? No, I just think that a lot of the, the close end fund space is really interesting to me right, right now. There's a lot of leverage there. I think that some of these floating rate preferred stocks are really interesting to me. Um, there's a couple of services kind of like mine that, that offer a lot of analysis, um, in that space. And I just think the, uh, the ability, particularly with the floating rate preferreds, like you have to pick the right one. But but that to, those to me have offered a lot of comfort in that I'm in these banks, right? Which banks have great are in great shape right now. It's not like 2008 in my view. And if if interest rates do kind of keep going crazy, then you're offering you're getting a little bit of protection there. Um, and I think that's a nice way to sort of hedge yourself against some of the crazy inflation ideas that some people have. And you know maybe those turn out to be you know correct or not. But but I I do like that space, and I don't know that a lot of people. Are, are looking at that stuff now. As we get to the end here, we always like to ask a question to get at the idea that, you know, sometimes the best investments in life are not necessarily ones that make money. And so I, I always reference when we ask this question, my racing sailboat. So I have a racing sailboat. It's, it's a terrible investment. Um, it just loses money. It just burns money. But I get to go out every Wednesday night with my friends, have a beer, do a race. You know, it, it, the, the benefits of my life have been really good. And by the way, you're, you're in the next town over. So, uh, you know, next year we'll have to get you out uh, sometime in the summer. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I know how to sail, so let me know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But is there anything like that in your life and anything that maybe is not the greatest financial investment, but you think you've seen a lot of benefits personally in your life with? Uh, I think I have a lot. <laughs> a lot of those, I, I feel like this is just a big waste of money. Uh, I, I was big into um, obstacle course racing is kind of my thing. And it is like it's inappropriate it's inappropriately expensive what they tra what they charge for all this and then i found as i got into my 40s now that um i need way more like maintenance so it sounds stupid it doesn't sound as expensive as a sailboat but if you go to the chiropractor or like you know the the stretch academy thing and and all those it adds up so fast and there's all sorts of equipment in the basement i mean that takes up half our garage and all stuff so you know i, I found it sort of like i don't want to put it in like this weird health bucket um, but you know, you do these races and then, um, and you prepare for the races. It takes a ton of time and I'm not babysitting and all those kinds of things, but it's like, I love it. It makes me try to feel still young. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I think that's probably like my biggest thing is as kind of corny as that may sound. That's really cool. Is that something you like travel around to do? I do like Spartan races are the big ones that, that I'll do. And then I'll do like a lot of like the little road races around, but like these Spartan races will be, you know, $250 to enter the race. And then you got to get a hotel room oftentimes and you're driving and, you know, taking the whole family. So it's like, it adds up to be, you know, like fairly expensive. And again, I, and then I hurt myself and I get home and it's like a hundred dollar chiropractic thing. And so it's, uh, it, it, it's a lot of mental pain, I think, and anguish too, you know. <laughs> are, are they like kind of what you see on TV? Like you're going over walls and you're climbing like in the water underneath ropes. Is it, is it that type of stuff? Yeah. And the funny story about that is that I was in the age 30 to 39 bracket and then COVID hit. So I had actually gotten uh, pretty good at it. And then when COVID hit, uh, I had one more race scheduled in, in like the, in that bracket. Uh, so I was like the oldest guy, you know, racing against, you know, 30 year olds or whatever. And now I'm going to be like the youngest guy in the 40 year old bracket. So, you know, we'll see like how all that shakes out. But, it's uh, it's a little, it's depressing to be sort of in that old man, old, old, old age, age bracket. What is it? It's, it's over 40 is what the bracket is. We expect some victories. Uh, now that you're the young guy in the group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was an insulting thing to be the over 40 age bracket. You know, it's not like there's no 50 and up. There's just sort of like, you know, over 40. <laughs> oh, they just dump him in the over 40 and everyone's in there. I gotcha. Um, so this, the standard closing question we, we, we like to ask in these episodes is if you could impart one lesson um, that you've learned in building your personal portfolio to your average investor, what would that be? Yeah, it, it's that it's the law of compounding. I mean, I think it's so valuable and I think that people need to stick with that. And in general, you know, just buy and hold, I think wins out over time. And and I think that if you can hedge your portfolio when it's smart, that adds the compounding, right? Because, um, and, and that could be, I think a lot of times the edge that people either need or, or helps them kind of mentally. Because again, it's hard to just sort of say, I'm going to buy and hold through a 20% decline in, in, in the market. And so um, if you can keep your sort of emotions in check, you know, um, and have like a real plan. It, it, it seems corny and hard to do, but once you get that plan down, it, it does make everything, I think, a lot easier. That's great, Brad. Thank you very much for spending all this time with us. We really appreciate it. And our listeners will too. If people want to learn more about you, the newsletter, what, what you're up to on Twitter, where can they go to find out more? 
Sure, thank you. I'm at Spot Gamma on Twitter. If you go to SpotGamma.com, we give you a free trial. We send out a note every day that analyzes the options market. And there's a bunch of different tools and analytics you can look at there. Um, so either of those, spot, uh, SpotGamma.com, if you just search Google for Spot Gamma, you'll find us. That's great. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.